Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Black and Cold, which is a true crime podcast. I am your host, Nichelle, and I am back this week with another case. On today's episode, we are in the state of Iowa, and I will be discussing a 2016 murder of a gender-fluid 16-year-old high school student. This is the murder of Kadari Johnson. So 16-year-old Kadari Johnson and his family recently began a new life in another state. Originally from Chicago, his mom Katrina wanted her sons to escape the violence from the big city, and she wanted to settle somewhere for a better life. So she packed up and moved her children almost four hours away to the very small town of Burlington, Iowa. Now, Burlington rarely had any crime, and this made Katrina feel comfortable with bringing her kids up there. Kadari made many friends while attending Burlington High School, and he was popular amongst many of his peers. He was described as being bubbly, funny, encouraging, and he was always positive, according to his friends. Kadari had a huge personality, and everyone seemed to gravitate towards him, but he also struggled with some bullying, as Burlington was considered to be a conservative town, and Kadari identified as a gender-fluid teen. He never tried to hide who he was, and he stayed true to himself, whether others agreed with it or not. According to his mother, Katrina, growing up in Chicago, Kadari came face-to-face with bullies starting at a young age. And this was because he liked to play with dolls, and he hung out with more girls than boys, so a lot of kids made fun of him because of that. At just 14 years old, Kadari came out to his mother bravely and told her that he was gay. Initially scared of what she may think, that quickly changed after Katrina accepted her son's sexuality with open arms. And she spoke on Oxygen's killer motive in an interview, and she basically was like she already knew and could sense it as a mother. She was just waiting for him to tell her whenever he was ready. Katrina said that after Kadari did come out, she could tell that he was very happy and he had a weight lifted off of his shoulders. But even though Kadari was happy, didn't necessarily mean everyone else was going to be. After a year of coming out to his loved ones, Kadari came home one day with blood dripping from his mouth. And according to True Life Crimes episode about this case, his jaw was even broken after the incident. Katrina says her son never came out and told her who assaulted him, but Kadari continued to stay true to himself even after the attack. She also stated from there on out, Kadari had this quote, I don't care attitude, and he just wanted to live life as his true self even more at that point. So eventually, Kadari began to express himself in women's clothing occasionally, as well as different hairstyles like long wigs and braids. A friend of his named Tramel was also interviewed on the Killer Motive episode, and he said Kadari was never afraid to wear what he wanted, nor was he ashamed. Kadari's confidence and positivity helped many others to be their true selves too. 
Another one of his friends named Devaris told MTV that Kadari was the first person he came out to as a gay male. And he said he was encouraged by Kadari to tell other people, although it was a difficult lifestyle to have living in Burlington. On March 2nd, 2016, now a junior, Kadari went to school, but he got into an altercation that day, causing him to get suspended, and he was sent home. He called his mother to tell her what happened, and Katrina had your typical mom response, and she told him to stay in the house. So Kadari went home and listened to his mom, but after some time being there, he decided to head back out. He went to the local Hy-Vee in their area, which is a supermarket, and True Life Crime said this is somewhere he went often to use their Wi-Fi. At 10.02 p.m., Kadari called his mom again that evening and told her he went to the Hy-Vee. And Katrina had the same response as earlier. She told him to go back home and to stay there. But Kadari never made it there. Approximately two hours later, he was found dead behind some houses in an alleyway. All of my New York listeners, if you are planning any type of event soon and are looking for some of the best balloon and decoration services, Neat Designs is here for you. Neat Designs offers the most gorgeous setups, whether it's for a birthday, baby shower, or just a simple brunch. And y'all, it is black owned. You can see the work that they do on their Instagram at N-E-A-T underscore designs underscore. A little before midnight, the police responded to multiple 911 calls after many people in the area heard some gunshots ring out in the East Walnut Alley. When the patrol officers responded to the scene, they discovered a body with a garbage bag over its head. Once they pulled the bag from the individual's face, officers realized that this was 16-year-old Kadari Johnson. His mouth was covered with a t-shirt that was wrapped around his neck and he was gagged with an additional plastic bag inside of his mouth. His shirt was rolled up, exposing a bra that he was wearing, and his pants were also pulled down, exposing his private areas. He was also barefoot. Because of the small conservative town that Burlington is, the police were already familiar with who their victim was upon their arrival. According to Sergeant Eric Short of the Burlington PD, who spoke on Killer Motive, He immediately thought Kadari was tortured before he was killed. He was shot twice in the chest, and besides his clothes exposing his intimate areas, law enforcement was taken back by the strong smell of bleach that surfaced the area, which they discovered Kadari's body was soaked in. Detective Melissa Smith, who also worked on this case, felt the significant amount of bleach at the crime scene meant the perpetrators were trying to cover up any evidence that may have been left there, as bleach can kill DNA. Burlington Police Department knew they were looking for a strategic person or persons, and they continued to search the crime scene throughout the night. The next morning on March 3rd, Katrina unfortunately had to receive the worst news that any mother could possibly hear. She was startled by investigators knocking on her door at around 10.30 a.m. After being asked if she was Kadari's mother and showing them a picture, the police confirmed with her that they found her son deceased. Kadari's death began to circulate around Burlington and his fellow classmates began to hear of the news. 
Every source that I've used for this episode, you guys, stressed that Kadari's death had such an impact on almost everyone at Burlington High School and in the community. His friends, along with his school counselor, expressed just how much everyone loved Kadari and his fun, bright personality. And from there, a lot of his loved ones just questioned the whole situation and wanted to understand how and why did this happen. The community of Burlington came together after Kadari's death. They held a local vigil in the alley where he was killed. And according to Katrina, she was overwhelmed with emotion when she realized how many people loved her son and just came to show their support. There were hundreds of people that attended his vigil and even more that attended his funeral. So many people were anticipated on being at Kadari's funeral that his service was held in the gym of his school at Burlington High. Authorities began their investigation into Kadari's death, and they learned that he visited the High V that evening, but they needed to figure out where his destination was after. From there, they quickly learned that the night Kadari was murdered, he visited one of his very close friends named Amari. According to Amari, when Kadari arrived at her house, he told her that he felt someone was following him on his way there from the High V. Kadari also mentioned that the person who he thought was doing the following, and that's where Amari learned of a guy named Lumni. So Amari spoke with Oxygen, and she told him that she'd never seen or heard of Lumni before, but she could tell that her friend was scared. Amari even looked out the window of her home to see if Kadari's feelings were right, and that's where she saw a red car sitting outside near her house, and she immediately thought that that was unusual, um, because it was so late at night and in their tiny neighborhood where they all lived, for cars to be parked on the street like that, like random cars to be parked on the street, it was just out of the ordinary, according to her. When Kadari was ready to head home that night, Amari gave her friend a few options so that he would feel safer. She suggested for her mom to take Kadari home. She suggested to walk with him home with her dog and even offered for him to go out the back door of her house. But sadly, he denied all of them and decided to leave by himself. As soon as Kadari left, Amina says she saw the red vehicle, quote, slightly pulling off, end quote. Besides Amari, the police also began to question Kadari's other loved ones just to see if they could find out any more information. And they learned that he had two different Facebook accounts. One he used under the name of Kadari, where he presented as male. And then he had another one under the name of Candace, where he presented as female. And just to be clear, um, the close family and friends of Kadari use he, him when they speak on his story. So that's why those were my pronouns of choice for this episode. But Kadari's friends also told the police that Candace's Facebook status was in a relationship and it was with someone named Nathaniel as they thought this could potentially help authorities with their investigation. Nathaniel and Kadari exchanged multiple messages and posts with each other leading up to his death. And some of those messages were actually threats from Nathaniel's end to Kadari. According to True Life Crime, Nathaniel told Kadari that he wanted to fight him, which put him on the radar of the police. A Des Moines Register reporter named Courtney Crowder, who covered this case, said the threats and exchanges with Nathaniel to Kadari were within just hours before his death and it appeared Kadari was trying to calm the situation down. 
None of Kadari's friends were even familiar with Nathaniel, making it harder to get any information on who this person even is. Authorities tried to reach out to him via Facebook, but they never got a response back. With nothing to really go off of for this Nathaniel person, the police were able to obtain video surveillance from the Hy-Vee grocery store, where they began to track Kadari's movements. Detectives were able to discover that Kadari presented himself as female the night that he was there. They viewed him on tape with long blonde and black braids walking around the supermarket where he was also wearing a backpack. Although the police could not see everything Kadari did while he was in there, his exit from the store is really what caught their eyes. When Kadari left the high V, he was captured walking through the parking lot, leaving in the opposite direction of his home, which is consistent with Amari's story and the direction of where her house was. And just so you guys have a clear picture, all of Kadari's destinations are pretty close to each other. The local high V was only two blocks from his home, and Kadari's home was only four to five blocks from Amari's home, according to MTV's reporting. But the Burlington police discovered from this video footage that a red vehicle pulled in the Hy-Vee's parking lot shortly after Kadari arrived there. From the video, they could confirm that it was a red Impala, which matched Amari's description to the car that she saw parked at her house. Initially, one male individual was seen getting out of the car entering the store, and then another male was seen coming into the store as well, but by foot. According to Sergeant Short, the two men had no interaction with Kadari while they were all in the high V. But again, when Kadari left, that's where the investigators attracted their attention. The red Impala appeared to start trailing Kadari's steps, which means the suspicions that Kadari told Amari about him being followed was right. Knowing the information that they did, the police now had something to work with, and that was this red Impala and the name Lumney, who Kadari said was the person that was following him. So investigators decided to look for Lumney on Facebook, and they found him, and they were quickly able to get his real name, which was Jorge Sanders Galvez, and he was from Missouri. Kadari's younger brother, Cedric, and a friend say they were both familiar with who Lumney was from the neighborhood. So the police knew they were looking for two men from this surveillance footage, right? And just putting two and two together from their social media research, authorities learned Galvez, a.k.a. Lumney, always hung out with someone who was known as Wicked West. And they decided to look for him, too. And they found him. He was Gerard Perham, also from Missouri. Now with two potential suspects, investigators went back to the Hy-Vee's video footage just to see if they were looking in the correct direction. And without a doubt, they were. The first male that was seen exiting the red Chevy Impala at 9.41 p.m. that evening, according to court documents, the police could confirm was Gerard Perham. About 15 minutes later, Jorge Sanders Galvez arrived to the store and he was the one on foot as he must have walked there from his previous destination, I don't know. Galvez and Perham were seen in the high V with each other where they made their purchases and they left in that same red Impala at 10.03 p.m. Less than a minute after they left, Kadari was captured leaving the high V by himself and that's where he began to be followed by the duo in the car. 
Kadari's autopsy confirmed that he died from the two gunshot wounds to his chest. And just as detectives expected, the excessive amount of bleach on him caused there to be no DNA to retrieve. However, the medical examiner also found some blue fibers on his body, which the police couldn't really understand at the time, but they were curious to know what they were from because it could be helpful to their case. So now that they kind of had a timeline coming together, investigators were able to get more information about Galvez and Perham by questioning people from the Burlington area. They learned that although the two men were from St. Louis, Missouri, they frequently partied and stayed at a friend's house in Iowa. Detectives decided to visit that home once they figured out the address, where they also learned that Gerard Perham's girlfriend may have lived as well. When they arrived, no one answered the door. But upon canvassing the outside of the home just to see if they could find anyone or maybe any vehicles, detectives noticed something. It was a box of black garbage bags with pink strings that were sitting in the garage. And these bags looked eerily similar to the ones at the crime scene. Shortly after that discovery, they were able to obtain a warrant to search the garage. And then right after that came a warrant to search the rest of the house. Inside of the home, Detective Smith stumbled across a book bag, as well as black and white Nike sneakers, all consistent with what Kadari was seen with on the video surveillance from the high V. Once she looked inside of the bag, she knew she was in the right place as she found a laptop along with Kadari's school ID. And all of these discoveries were tied together even more after authorities found blue sheets on the floor, which looked quite similar as the blue fibers found on Kadari's body by the medical examiner. To be sure, they decided to take the sheets in to be tested, and the fibers from them later were confirmed to be a match to the one on Kadari's clothing. So at this point, they had enough evidence to arrest both Galvez and Perham. The police discovered Gerard's girlfriend had a red Chevy Impala, which they got the information on the plates for, ran them, and told additional departments to be on the lookout for. And it didn't take long for authorities to locate it. Three days after detectives searched the home, Gerard Perham was located in Florissant, Missouri, when the cops spotted the vehicle on alert. Realizing he was caught, Perham took off but ended up crashing the vehicle. He then tried to take off on foot, but he didn't get far after the police caught up to him and apprehended him. After being taken into custody, the Chevy Impala was then searched, and inside, investigators found a 357 revolver, which was consistent with gunshots Kadari died from, which ballistics later proved to be a match. Back at the station, Perham was questioned, and he initially told investigators that him and his cousin, Jorge Sanders Galvez, spotted Kadari at the high V, believing he was biologically a female, so they picked him up. He then said they took Kadari to Amari's house and waited for him there because he wasn't going to be long. According to Perham, when Kadari left Amari's, he got back into the vehicle with them, where he was then under the, under the impression that this girl liked his cousin more, so assuming that they would be sexually active, meaning Kadari and Lumni, Perham decided that he wanted to leave. So that's where he told the police that he was dropped off at a friend's house so his cousin and this girl that they just met could be with each other. 
But Gerard's story ended up falling apart. Not only could the surveillance show that Qadari left the store on his own, but his alibi wasn't verified either after the friend whose house he said he was staying at told the police that he was not with him on the night of March 2nd. The police knew they needed to hear from the other potential suspect, which was Jorge, a.k.a. Lummi, and after one month of searching for him, on April 12, 2016, he was finally located in St. Louis and picked up on a warrant. Just like his cousin, he tried to run as well, but he was eventually apprehended and taken into custody. Jorge didn't have much to say to the police when he was being questioned. He completely denied everything. He stated he never came into contact with Kadari that evening, even though he knew who he was. And at one point, I thought this was interesting, Lumni even tried to deny knowing Kadari altogether. And just to add, um, it later came out that Lumni was actually friends with Candace's Facebook page. And according to Kadari's friends, they were all a part of a large group chat with one another, including Lumni. And others were under the impression that they never interacted. Both Galvez and Perham were charged with first-degree murder. And as soon as their case came to the DA's office, they had a clear picture of what they thought happened. Because of the circumstances around the night Kadari was murdered, prosecutors figured that this could be a potential hate crime, suggesting that the two men picked up Kadari that evening, who presented himself as female, and when they discovered he was biologically male, they decided to torture and kill him. Prosecutors also felt, because he was discovered with his private areas exposed, that this could be more of evidence of a hate crime in this case. Although this all sounded like it made sense, gender identity was not protected under Iowa state law, so that charge could not come from the state. It was up to the U.S. Attorney's Office to bring federal hate crime charges in Kadari's case. But Iowa prosecutors still determined that this was the same motive for the case against the two cousins from the state. In December of 2017, Jorge Sanders Galvez took the stand at his own trial. But that ended up doing him more harm than good when he was met with all the evidence against him. Galvez had many strange, questionable behaviors following Kadari's death that were presented in his trial. He was very active on his phone, like most people are nowadays. He was active via text and social media up until the very same day that Kadari was murdered. Investigators said it seemed as if all of his phone activity just stopped. According to the court documents, Galvis even gave people indication that he was planning on leaving town not too long after March 2nd. From Galvez's phone history, Sergeant Short's team was able to determine that he even Googled, quote, murders in Burlington, Iowa, end quote, which gave off the idea that he was trying to keep track with the police investigation and that he wanted to follow information on Kadari's murder. And this is a total sidebar, but so many people do this. Many murderers do this. A lot of them even may attend searches for their victims and sometimes even their funerals. I guess it just gives them this satisfaction. I don't know. I'm not sure. But it's so common and it's just like that's so crazy. 
But after the jury deliberated for an hour and a half, Jorge Sanders Galvez was found guilty of first-degree murder, and he was sentenced to life without parole not too long after. One year later, on October 4th, 2018, was the fate of Gerard Perham. He did not take the stand like his cousin-slash-co-defendant did, but after all the evidence was presented at his trial, he was also found guilty of first-degree murder and sentenced to life without parole. Both men have never admitted to any involvement, nonetheless a motive in Kadari's death. So there's the prosecution's theory, right, that both Galvez and Perham were under the impression that Kadari was bio- a biological female, and after bringing him back to the house they stayed at, to- they wanted to engage in sex, and they made the choice to murder him after they discovered that he was a, a bio-male. But many of Kadari's close friends believe Jorge, a.k.a. Lumni, may have had previous encounters with Kadari, and they feel he may have killed him because people were going to find out. Although there is no confirmation on this, Kadari's friends also feel Lumni could have been the person that Candace was in a relationship with going off the status from Facebook. And remember, Candace was the page that Kadari used when he presented as female. And they feel Lumni could have possibly been Nathaniel, the same person that was in frequent contact and made those threats to the Candace page literally hours before Kadari was killed. Also, at least to my knowledge, the police haven't heard back from this Nathaniel person, so I could definitely see why this is a theory his friends consider. According to Killer Motive, although the state's case is closed, there is still a possibility that federal hate crime charges can be brought to both individuals. But up until this day, there have been no movements made in that. So I just don't understand um, for this whole case in general how someone's sexuality or the lifestyle that they choose to live could affect you so much to the point that you'd want to take their life. That's just something I will never understand. Unlike many of my previous episodes, this is one of those cases where surveillance did its job and helped bring justice, among other evidence, in Kadari's case. And also, just like last week in the Jassy Correa case, where everything was seen on tape to an extent, who's to say what could have been solved if none of these videos were accessed? So many of the, you know, missing person stories I cover... You guys know how many times do you hear me say or hear other podcasters say the video cameras weren't working? A lot. (laughs) So I'm glad, you know, that some type of justice was brought in this case and that Kadari's family could at least get some type of closure. Thank you for tuning in to this episode. I will be back next week with another case.